The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to hit subscribe on this podcast to get more great investing content. And if you're listening on YouTube, hit that like button on the video. Any other platform, your five-star rating and review are a great way to support the show. That's the only way the show is spread to more audiences when they're trying to find investing content. Thank you for your support. So today, I have a very exciting topic that I want to cover to you today. I've been looking forward to doing this episode for some time, and we are talking about the coffee can portfolio. This is a strategy that I am incorporating concepts into my personal investing process, and I think you could learn something from the strategies talked about in the coffee can portfolio even if you do not implement the coffee can portfolio for yourself. This should apply both to individual and professional investors, but the actual process for this will be most applicable to individual investors, but I think it will be helpful to learn about either way. So what is the coffee can portfolio? Coffee can portfolio follows this general idea that in the olden times and the Wild West and all these times, especially when banks weren't trusted and everything like that, when you're saving up money, when you're saving valuables, what would you do? You would put your money, you would put your valuables into a coffee can, close the top and put it under your bed and you would leave it there. And there's this idea that especially during the Great Depression, you had some investors buy a bunch of stock certificates, they would roll them up put them in a coffee can, seal it, and leave it be. And then 20, 30, 40 years later, they'd open it up and they'd be rich. And so there's this idea that these stock certificates are investments in business and what you're doing is you are acquiring them and you are never selling. So that's the general headline for the coffee can portfolio. It is a portfolio designed around the idea that you never sell. So if you are going to implement an investing process that is the central idea is that you never sell stocks. What does that mean? How does that change how you think about investing? Well, there's a lot of benefits from never selling stocks. There's a lot of economic benefits for your, the, the returns in your portfolio, but there's also psychological benefits that happen with this portfolio. And we're going to go through them today. We're going to talk about the characteristics of a coffee can stock, talk about how the coffee can portfolio can develop and talk about the process you use to implement this in your investing strategy. So 
If you're never going to sell stocks, what does the coffee can portfolio look like? Well, the first thing to understand is the coffee can portfolio is going to have only certain companies qualify. If you can't sell the stock, some types of companies cannot fit in the portfolio because some companies just aren't high enough quality to justify that. Maybe their risks are too high. Maybe there's things that could come up that could cause you to be unable to hold on to that stock any longer. And what you really need is you need top-notch stocks if you're going to put them in the, in the coffee can portfolio. And it means that the focus is going to be less on the price paid and more on the company you're buying because you are buying for the long term. You're buying till the day you die. You are not selling these stocks and this is the strategy you're going with. So if you're going to do that, you need to be very, very, very picky about the companies you pick. Now, I think being picky about the companies you pick can be helpful to all investors, um, but it is especially important for coffee can portfolio investors. So we're going to dive into some of that today. But another piece of the coffee can portfolio is that it benefits from a deferred tax liability. With current tax law in the United States and many countries around the world, you have capital gains taxes. These taxes are taxes that you pay when a stock or when an asset is sold. So if you buy a stock and you hold it for one year, then you will owe taxes at the end of the year when you sell it. Likewise, if you buy a stock and you hold it for five years, you won't pay taxes on the stock during the first four years, but you would pay taxes in year five when you sell the stock. But if you buy a stock and you hold it for 50 years, you're not going to pay taxes on the stock in years one through 49. You will only pay taxes on the stock in year 50 which means that you are avoiding and deferring taxes as long as you possibly can. And by doing that, it is likely that if the stock is going up in value, that you are building up a massive deferred tax liability, which is being invested alongside your actual principal. What that does is it supercharges your returns. You could get an extra 1%, 2 3% returns on your portfolio each year if you simply hold your stocks for a much longer period of time. Now, obviously, if you're investing inside tax advantage vehicles, Roth IRAs, 401ks, um, traditional IRAs, traditional 401ks, 403bs, anything like that, it will be slightly different. You don't have the same deferred tax liability, but if you're in a taxable account and as you grow in terms of the amount of wealth that you're managing, you are likely to eventually have taxable accounts or taxable monies. Um, that is when deferred tax becomes especially significant. So that's one of the key advantages of the coffee can portfolio. It's why they continued to outperform over time because the extreme passivity allows you to build up a deferred tax liability leading to an extra one, two, or 3% returns per year simply by not paying taxes. That completely ignores the stock's actual performance. It's just about not paying taxes each year. Obviously, the normal caveat supply that if you, know, if you have dividends, you'll end up paying taxes on those dividends each year. But if the stock's not paying dividends or if the dividends are a small portion of the return, then it would build up that same deferred tax liability. The key, third key point here is that this strategy is going to be preferable for individual investors. It is very hard to implement professionally because in general, 
professionals are paid to be active. They're made to make active decisions, and it's really hard to justify paying a fee to an investment professional if all they're going to do is buy a stock and sit on it and never sell. If you know the investor is never going to sell it and they're never going to make a decision about that stock, then why are you paying a 1% fee, a 2% fee, a half percent, whatever it may be? Because once you see that stock in your portfolio, You could say, okay, well, it's been identified as a never sell stock. Let's just leave it in the portfolio and I will take it out and not have that money managed by the professional. So it can be very difficult with the incentives that professional investors have to implement a coffee can portfolio. Now, that is not wholesale true. There have been coffee can portfolios created um, as investments for investors. professionals. um, And professionals have done this and successfully monetized this, um, but they're usually done in an ETF form. They're usually done in um, a closed in fund form. Um, And the ones that I'm aware of have outperformed the S&P 500 for a significant period of time. I know there's at least one that I think has been around for 30, 40, 50 years um, and has beaten the S&P 500 by a few percent um, over a very long period of time without any selling the stocks, they're not buying new stocks and they're not selling and they're just maintaining the same closed end fund. Um, it's an example of, of demonstrating that ability over a long period of time. So now for the most important part here, what we need to talk about is characteristics of a coffee can stock. If you're going to build a coffee can portfolio, you need to know which types of stocks you can put it in. And those stocks are going to have unique characteristics. These are characteristics that you may look for in non-coffee can portfolios. So if you're not interested in the coffee can portfolio itself, you might learn from some of the, finding some of these stocks could be helpful anyway. But coffee can portfolio, the type of company is incredibly important. This is paramount to get the company right. The price is 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 always a little important, but the the specific company getting the right company is absolutely important for a coffee can portfolio because you're never going to sell the stock. You need to get the stock right. The price can work itself out a little bit over time if you're going to hold it for 30, 40, 50 years, but the company has to be right. So, With that said, the first characteristic of a coffee can stock that I want to highlight is that the stock and the company needs to be in an industry that lacks disruption risk. This is industries that lack disruption risk. This is not a social media company. This is not a semiconductor company. This is not a company that is heavy and heavy into tech that's changing rapidly. We're talking about industries that don't change rapidly. We're talking about industries that have no change at all or very little change. And this is incredibly important because if you're going to hold a company for 30, 40, 50 years without considering selling, you need to understand the industry dynamics. You need to understand the industry economics. You need to understand the business economics. And all of those pieces play into the ability for a company to outperform over long periods of time. And for you to do it without having to worry about selling, uh, you know, when a new earnings report comes out or something like that. So the industry needs to lack disruption risk, which means it needs to be an industry that's been around a very long time. And it needs to be an industry that will be around for a very long time in the future. Um, what are some examples? Well, 
the example that is most exemplifies this to me is banking. Um, there were banks hundreds of years ago. And the idea and the core functions of banking have been around for over a thousand years. Um, banking is one of the core key functions of commerce that allows us to trade with each other, to have banking, credit formation, um, the need for savers to earn a return on their money is always going to exist. And the need for um, creditors to be able to borrow money is always going to exist. And the need for an intermediary, now some might say that won't necessarily always need to exist, but an intermediary is incredibly important because most savers, vast, vast, vast majority, do not want to spend time evaluating creditor risks. And most creditors don't want to have to interact with a bunch of savers. An intermediary, like a bank, provides value to both. So banking has been around for a thousand years, it's going to be around for another thousand years. So that type of industry, that type of thought process is kind of what you're looking for. Um, Doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be an industry with, you know, um, that you know a lot about, but, but that's the sort of thing you're going to have. Not a lot of people like banking, and so you don't have to use that one, but it's a type of one. Stuff like, let's say, home building. Well, we're always going to need to build homes. There's, I never anticipate that going away. Um, maybe it has too much competition. I don't know. That's a different bullet point we can talk about. But it's stuff like that where you say, okay, people are always going to need homes. What else are people always going to need? They're always going to need food. Um, so food companies would easily fall into this. Um, beverage companies or let's say alcohol companies are always going to fall into this because um, alcohol has existed for thousands of years and will continue to exist for thousands of years. And I think it's been proven pretty well that prohibition was not very favorable and would be fought consistently in the United States, at least. And so I would expect alcohol companies to still be around in thousands of years. Um, and so they're not disruptable. Um, there's not going to be a disruption that's, that basically has everyone in the world stop drinking alcohol. Um, so it doesn't face disruption risk. So you're looking for an industry like that. They don't face disruption risk. They're going to be around your entire lifetime. And there's really no doubt about that. Now, will the specific company be around in your entire lifetime? There's no guarantee. We can't know that for sure. That's impossible to predict. But the industry as a whole needs to be an industry where it's common to exist 100 years from now. That should be the benchmark you're looking for. Will this industry still be around in 100 years without major changes in technology? And, and that's what you're looking for there. The second piece, and this one's really important too, is you want stable and high returns on capital or returns on equity. Now, normally I would just say returns on capital, um, but I include returns on equity because there are some industries like banking where it's common to have high leverage in order to get sufficient returns. So um, for almost all industries, I would say returns on capital need to be 15% or higher. Um, if you're going to include banking for banking specifically, returns on equity can be returns on equity can be 15% or higher, which would correlate to return on assets of 1.5 to 2%. Um, but in general, let's say returns on capital of 15% or higher, and they need to be stable and reliable. They need a history of having proven that they can earn returns like that over a long period of time. And the expectation that for a long period of time in the future, returns on capital will exceed 15%. 
Why 15%? Well, it needs to be higher than your target rate of return. So if you're targeting like a 10% rate of return for me, then something like 15% is a good marker because it means that all growth is going to benefit you and all growth is going to lead towards you achieving your target rate of return. And then of course, higher is better, but it's just going to change the rapidity at which you get there. Um, but I really like 15% as matrix. You don't necessarily need the highest. You're not looking for 30%. You're not looking for 50%. You're not looking for 100%. You just need to be at least 15%. If you have 15%, that's good. That's perfect. I would take a 15% return on equity company that can invest all that money and continue growing more than someone that has a return on equity of 60%, but they can only grow 2 or 3%. So you, you want stable and high returns on capital. The other piece is you need them to grow. You want long-term sustainable organic growth of at least 5%, but preferably in the 10 to 15% range. Now, we're not looking for 20% growers. We're not looking for 30% growers um, because you don't want companies that are going to grow really fast real quick and then stop growing at all completely in the future. Um, If they can sustain 20% growth for 20, 30 years, then obviously it's a good deal. Um, but you really want the ones that are growing between five and 15% because that's where they're more likely to be overlooked. And, and if you can grow five, six, seven, eight percent every year forever, you can make a lot of value for shareholders. Um, and that, that's a really good stock to have as a, as a coffee can portfolio stock. You want low competition. Um, they could be a regulated monopoly, um, like a utility company. They could be an oligopoly, um, like railroads, um, something along those lines you want. You, this is not required, but it, it is a positive point. If there's low competition, they don't face competition risk. Banks don't face competition risks. Um, alcohol companies don't have a lot of competition. Once they're successful, they, the brands that are built, they tend to stay in business. Um, so stuff like that, where there's not a lot of competition between companies where you're stealing company customers, you're not marketing a lot to try and spend a lot of money on stuff to take customers. You're just milking the, uh, the returns. And that's really good for long-term shareholders. You would like, some sort of founder-led company or a long-term CEO with skin in the game. Now, if you're holding a stock for 50 years, you can't rely on the CEO to still be there in 50 years. So this is definitely one of those nice-to-haves. You don't necessarily need it. Um, but it's nice to have a founder-led company. If you if you have a founder that's 40 years old, 45 years old, you might have another 20, 30, 40 years with that founder leading the company. And you can basically invest alongside them. And founders have a lot of benefits. They're able to run companies more efficiently than a non-founder CEO. A founder can take no salary or can take a $100,000 salary while um, an MBA CEO might request two or $3 million as their compensation. And that percolates throughout the company. If the CEO is earning $3 million, then the vice presidents want to earn five or 600000 um, but if the CEO is earning a hundred thousand or 200,000, cause he's the founder, then, um, well, maybe your vice presidents only need to earn 150,000. I mean, they can maybe earn more than the founder cause the founders, you know, heavily invested in shares, but they're not going to earn as much money. It's going to be a more efficiently run company. It's going to percolate through the whole company that, Hey, this is my money. I'm going to run it efficiently. I'm going to, I'm going to spend my money wisely. And so founder led companies have a supreme advantage there. Um, 
And long-term CEOs can also get it. So if a CEO has come in, they aren't the founder, but they bought a lot of stock. They own 10, 20% of the stock. That's like 99% of their wealth. They bought it in the open market. It wasn't just gifted to them. That can be really beneficial when you're thinking really long-term. You're thinking about um, someone that plans to be there for 20 or 30 years. That's what you really want. You want a CEO that's going to be there for 20, 30 years. You can say, hey, this person's reputable. They're they're not going to steal from me. They're not compensating themselves too highly. You can have a lot of the advantages that are seen in founder C- founder-led companies in CEO in non-founder companies, as long as they adopt some of those same things. What if CEOs paying themselves obscene amounts of money? Um, that, that's a downside. And so you need to look at that. Those are the types of things that can be red flags that it might be an okay company, but is it a coffee can company? Can I really trust that, that no one's going to abuse this in the next 20 or 30 years? That's what you need to think about. Um, debt and leverage become really important. I would ideally like companies that are have zero debt, no debt, or if they do have debt, they have leverage policies that keep the debt really low because what you want to avoid is any risk of bankruptcy. You want to avoid any risk of default. Um, so if a company's highly leveraged, you just kick it out. Can't consider it for a coffee can because it, the compounding gets shut down if, if it ever goes to zero. And so it's not that you couldn't invest in, in highly leveraged companies in normal strategies, in non-coffee can portfolio strategies, but you for those companies, you'd have to watch them closely. And so we're trying to find companies that we don't have to watch closely, companies that once you've made the decision to buy it, you never sell, you don't have to worry about it, which means ideally they have no debt. And if they do have debt, they have a leverage policy that limits the amount of debt they take on. So maybe it's one times leverage or, or one and a half times leverage versus you know, a common leverage target for a more normal company might be three times leverage or four times leverage. And if you get into private equity, they might use three, four, five, six times leverage when they're taking over a company and they're doing acquisition rollups. And you want to avoid that because not because that's not a way that you can make money in other strategies, but for this strategy, it really doesn't work. You need to only buy companies that you don't have to worry about bankruptcy risk. What else would be good? One thing that's helpful is the ability to be a 10 bagger or 100 bagger. Now, you can't predict this always in advance, but there is a way to think about this. There's ways to identify what is a 10 bagger, what is a 100 bagger. If you're going to own a stock for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you want that stock to 10 bag or 100 bag in that time frame. You want it to be 10 or 100 times larger in size. Basically, if you put in $10,000, 100 bagging would be mean that your $10,000 becomes a million dollars over your holding period. And if you do that over 30 years, that's a very respectable return. For every $10,000 you put in, you get a million dollars out. And so you need to find the companies that have that potential. And, and a lot of those potential qualities, are the ones I've already mentioned, um, but you need to be able to imagine it. You need to be able to imagine in advance, what could this company do to be 10x bigger than it is today? What could this company do to be 100x bigger than it is today? Is it achievable? Can they do it without taking on debt? You know, if, if they keep growing for 10, 20, 30 years, is that something that's going to happen? Um, so they're usually going to be small. Um, small with the ability to grow large. So you're going to be talking about micro caps. You're going to be talking about market caps of 10 million, 100 million, $250 million. You're not as much talking about companies that have a $100 billion market cap or a $500 billion market cap. Can they continue growing large? Sure, but they're already very, very big. So you're looking for smaller companies. 
um, that really do well in their current niche. So they own a very, very small niche and they either have the ability to, to grow into new niches, uh, larger niches, or they are in a, a small competitor in a very large niche. And so this is actually a really interesting one. If you're a small competitor and you have a competitive advantage, usually it's something like cost. If you're a low cost producer, um, but you have only 0.1% market share or 1% market share, and the industry leader has 50%, if you are competitive in cost over the market share leader who has 50% market share and you're at 1%, then that means you can 10x your market share to go to 1% to 10%. You probably don't even have to attack the market share leader if you're lower cost than them, but you'll be able to steal market share. And as long as the market's growing, you're going to be able to, to steal market share and take a big part of the bigger pie. Examples of this who have done really well, um, a lot a lot of that happens in retail. So you think early Walmart, think Costco, Home Depot, Geico. Uh, these are companies that are really that started really small, but from the very beginning they were highly competitive. Um, they had better unit economics. So those unit economics are just repeated, repeated, repeated year over year, and that allows them to grow very big relative to their starting points. But the key is, is there something that you can identify with this company that makes them better than their competitors? If it is an industry with competition, they better be the best in the industry. And if they're the best in the industry and they're small, now you can see how a 10-bagger could happen. Now you can see how a 100-bagger could happen. So you don't have to know it will happen, but you just need to think, is this a possibility? Some companies you can look at and say, this company will never 10-bag in any reasonable amount of time. It doesn't mean it's a bad investment, but that's not the same thing as a coffee can portfolio. So you want to see intelligent capital allocation strategies that benefit shareholders. So if you're going to be holding the stock for 50 years or 30 years, you really want a lack of dilution. You don't want a lot of share issuance to insiders. You don't want them giving a lot of shares to executives and employees, maybe employees, but like not executives. You don't want a lot of share bonuses and things. Um, dilution needs to really stay below like 1% a year. Because if you think about it, like if dilution's like 2 or 3% a year, then the share count's going to double or triple over your holding period. Um of 50 years, if it's two or 3% a year, that just compounds negatively to you. So then you're, you're, the value of your investment is substantially lower. So dilution needs to be but 1% or lower and ideally none. Uh, you'd ideally like to see companies that are buying back stock and the share counts dropping over time. Which brings me to the next point there with the capital allocations that could really work well for this is, is something where you see growing dividends or buybacks over time. These are like the dividend champion type stocks where they grow the dividend every year for 10 years or they grow the dividend every year for 25 years. So it's not necessarily a big part of their pay. Like the payout isn't necessarily a big part of the earnings, but they grow it every year. And so that means that it's, it's sustainable and it's going to continue growing for when you hold it. And then finally, you don't really want to see a lot of acquisitions. So unless it's a roll-up strategy, um, you kind of want an aversion to acquisitions that's being stated by management because acquisitions can often destroy shareholder value. This is part of the problem of a lot of the food companies these days. If you think about big food companies, um, one of the things they're having to do is there's a lot of upstart brands now with the internet and they're having to buy these brands. So you know, if you're Coca-Cola... 
it's not as simple to say, okay, we have Coca-Cola brand, we have, the, we have brands like that. Well, they're having to buy out the new brands that are coming up to, to compete with them because it's the only way for them to grow. It's the only way for them to keep live because new brands can start for cheaper and both parties can benefit when the buyout happens, but shareholders are having a lot of value destroyed by these acquisitions. Um, they're necessary at that size, but you really don't want to be in a business where you have to acquire other companies in order to survive or in order to get your return. Um, it just It's just a big headwind to your future returns. So that basically covers the characteristics of a coffee can stock. I think it's really important to remember here if you're going to build a coffee can portfolio, it's all about company selection. This is like the whole strategy. It's all about company selection. You have to get the company right. You can afford to slightly overpay on the price, but you cannot afford to get the company wrong. If you're going to hold a stock for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you cannot get the company wrong. You have to get the right companies. So you really need to start checking all the boxes. You need to have this checklist going and you need to say, how many of these things can I check off? Because you really want as many of them as possible um, because of just how the portfolio works, because of how the concept of never sell works. You need to understand what goes into that. Now, all these characteristics are great characteristics to have, even in a non-coffee can portfolio. If you can find these characteristics, it's going to make it easier for you to hold and it's going to make it easier for you to get better returns just in normal portfolios. So you should try and find these characteristics anyway, but they're absolutely critical for a coffee can stock. So the next thing, it's not it's not a characteristic of a stock. It, we need to talk more about what, what we mean by a coffee can portfolio. So it's called the coffee can portfolio, but you really... You can't think about your stocks as a portfolio if you're a coffee can investor. You are a true business owner. What you would want to do is you don't want to track your stocks as a percentage of a total value. So it would be a mistake with the coffee can portfolio to say, hey, these are the stocks I own. And so 20% of my portfolio is in company A, 50% is in company B, 7% in company C. That's a mistake. You cannot look at it that way. Instead, you say, I own you know, 10,000 shares of company A, I own 15,000 shares of company B, and I own 5,000 shares of company C. And you look simply at those companies. How are those companies performing? That sort of thing. You're a true business owner. Do not look at it as a portfolio. Warren Buffett has a good example of this. When you look at his um, annual reports, he doesn't list them as a percentage of a portfolio. Instead, he simply lists them as the percentage of that company that he owns. So he might say, I own 3% of company A, I own 6% of company B, and I own 1% of company C. He doesn't say that company C is 7% of his portfolio. He says, I own 1% of company C. And that's how you need to structure it. That's how you need to think about it. Because if you think about them as a portfolio, it's going to cause you psychological problems. It's going to cause you to want to change the way the portfolio works. So you judge your success by the performance of individual companies, not the overall portfolio return. We might say, okay, well, this is a problem. Like if I want a 10% portfolio return, don't I have to calculate that? And it's like, well, no. If every individual company that you're evaluating and you're investing in is able to compound at 10% per year or more, then you know by definition that the portfolio as a whole 
is going to is compounding by at least 10% per year. You don't actually have to calculate your portfolio return to know that you're meeting it if you focus simply on individual individual companies. But the other piece here is that portfolio sizing no longer matters. If your coffee can portfolio is successful, if it does what it's supposed to do, your biggest winners are going to grow as a percentage of your portfolio. Your greatest winners may eventually become 50%, 75%, or 90% of the total portfolio. Not only is that so, is that okay? That's how the strategy works. That's how the strategy outperforms. What you're trying to do is, let's say you're targeting a 10% annual return per year, but one of your companies is compounding at 15%, and the other companies are compounding at 9% or 10%. Eventually, company A, the one that's compounding at 15% a year, will become 90% of your portfolio because the compounding advantage over long periods of time is just going to become astronomical. You might have a portfolio that is $9 million company A and $500,000 company B and $400,000 company C and $200,000 company D. And so the it'll be like 90% of your portfolio is company A at $9 million and your total portfolio is $10 million. That's a success though, because your portfolio is 10 million. You're still rich. You still made it. But if you look at it as position sizing, you're going to say, oh, something's wrong. Um, I need to sell company A and you'll destroy the compounding process. The way this strategy works is you let companies compound long enough that you don't sell them and that allows you to outperform. Um, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to find that one company that compounds at 13, 14, 15% a year forever. You don't necessarily know which one it is in advance. You find the right characteristics, but you can't predict that. What you can try and do is say, if I just keep doing this, if I keep finding companies that fit these characteristics, maybe one will eventually win. And if you do have one that wins, it'll be a disproportionate portion of the success of the portfolio. It doesn't mean the rest were failures. It means that the whole strategy was fine to just to find the one or two stocks that worked really, really well. So how do you do this? How do you implement a coffee can portfolio? If you listen to this, you like this idea, now you can read more about it, but the general idea works like this. There's a few different ways to do it, but the way that I think makes the most sense for individual investors, especially if you're working another part full-time job or something and you're doing this part-time, is what you want to do is you want to spend all your research in the year, trying to identify one stock to buy. And your goal is to buy one new stock a year each year you work. Just one. Just one stock a year every year. And the idea is in year one, you're saving up money, and you put your entire savings for that year into one stock. You take those certificates, and you lock them away, and you never sell the stock. And then in year two, you take all your savings for the year and you put it into a different stock, company B. However much money you save, you put it in company B. You don't worry about company A. You already did company A. You're on company B now in year two. In year three, you worry about company C. Find company C and put all of your savings for year three into company C. Year four, you do it with company D. Year five, you do it with company E. And you keep doing this every year of your career. And so at the end of your career, you have 30, 40, 50 stocks, and they've all been invested with one year of savings. Now, some years you're going to save more, some years you're going to save less, some years you're going to get a bonus, some years you're not. That's okay. 
Again, the point is not to think about this as a portfolio. You're thinking about the individual stocks. If you can, and the key here is, it's hard to find five or ten new stocks each year, but you might be able to find one. You might be able to find one stock each year that meets this requirement. So. Do your homework trying to find the absolute best idea you have that meets these requirements once a year. That's something you can achieve in your spare time. That's something you can achieve doing two, three, four, five, ten hours a week. It's not a full-time effort. But if you can find one stock a year and put your money in it, that can be a successful way to implement a coffee can portfolio because you're investing You're not diversifying all at the beginning. What you're doing is diversifying over time. You're diversifying over 30 years of investments. You're diversifying over 40 years of investments. Now you have 30 stocks. Now you have 40 stocks. So in the first year, you're not going to be diversified. But by year 10, you now have a 10-stock portfolio. You've now learned as an investor. You're a better investor in year 10. You've learned, seen more things happen. By year 20, you have 20 different stocks. You've learned for 20 years. You have had growth in some of the stocks over time. You've been receiving dividends from your early investments. They've grown potentially into some big investments for you that can help you buy new ones. You're building this portfolio over time. So at the end of your career, you're going to have a diversified portfolio, but you're just not going to build it all at once. So the idea is buy one stock a year, each year you work. You put all your savings for the year into that company and you never sell. Ideally, if you really want to do this well, at the end of the year, after you're done buying shares in the company, you would take the shares out of your broker and have them transferred to you in direct certificate form. And so then you can take those certificates and put them in the bank in a safety deposit box. Or if you don't want to do it um, and hold this shares the certificates directly, you can have them um, with an online transfer agent or um, trustee that can hold them for you and hold them in certificate form so that you're not able to sell them. The key is don't hold the shares of stock at your broker where you can simply click a button and click sell. Take them out of your broker and put them into a trustee, whether that be a safety deposit box at a bank or an online trustee. There's many reputable ones, um, stuff like Northern Trust, um, where you basically have them hold your shares in your name, and so it's not in the broker's name. It doesn't say, you know, Charles Schwab. It, the company st- instead knows, you know, you are the owner. It will have your name on the certificate. It will have your name on the shareholder register of the company. What they'll do is they will mail you an annual report each year because your name is on the co- the stock. And so it also means you're just not going to sell as easily. You now have to take the certificates back to a broker in order to sell it. It's a lot harder. You build that friction and that allows you to actually implement the strategy. So don't hold the shares directly with the broker. Find a trustee that can hold them for you. Make sure they're listed directly in your name instead of street name. You don't want Schwab's name on it. You don't want Fidelity's name on it. It's fine for the year while you buy them, but once you buy it, transfer it all and build that coffee can over time. So it limits your ability to share, and it's a huge psychological boost in actually implementing the strategy. 
So that's it. Really, there's three parts to this. You have the characteristics for a coffee can stock. You have the need to not think of your stocks as a portfolio. And then there's the process of buying it. It's pretty straightforward. The coffee can strategy allows you to find and seek out never sell stocks. You're not going to sell, so only certain companies qualify. If you implement this strategy well, it will benefit you with a massive deferred tax liability. And this can become significant over time and it could lead to suffering like 1, 2, or 3% of extra percentage of return because you're not having to sell your stocks and turn over your portfolio. Again, it's preferable mostly for individual investors, but I think professional investors can learn from these characteristics. They can learn from the benefit of focusing on not thinking of your stock as a portfolio and trying to think about what the best process is to acquire companies. So as an individual, you should find a process that allows individuals to outperform. The coffee can portfolio is one of those types of strategies. And so I just cover the basics here. Um, There's a lot more you can learn about it, but I think I've covered everything that really needs to be known to really get interested. This is strategies that are going to interest you or it's not. If it's not, great. Continue. I mean, I talk about lots of strategies on this podcast, but I've started to adopt principles of this into my own process. Now, I've not committed to never selling stocks, but what I have done is I'm trying to find stocks that I never want to sell. I'll sell them if I must. I'm going to continue to actively monitor them, but I'm trying to find stocks that fit all of these characteristics and put it into my active portfolio. So if I end up with five stocks in my portfolio that I really like and I never want to sell, well, great. Think about how easy it is for my future investing. If they're all compounding at 10, 15, 20% a year and I'm not having to sell them, well, that makes it easy. So I'm using some of these ideas. I'm using these characteristics of these coffee can stocks and I'm using them as the baseline for finding portfolio stocks for my own portfolio, even though I'm not making it a true coffee can. I'm trying to find those 10 baggers. I'm trying to find those 100 baggers. I'm trying to find stocks I never want to sell and put them into my portfolio because those are the ones I really want to own. I want to own stocks that I don't have to think about. I want to own stocks that I don't ever have to worry about what's on the next earnings release. I want to own stocks that all I have to do is once a year, open up my annual report, read it for an hour or two, say, hey, great, earnings are 6% higher and cash my dividend check. That's what I want from my investments. And if this appeals to you, I think that's you can probably see similar reasons alongside that. So thank you for listening to this episode. The full show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at diyinvesting.org slash episode 108. Don't forget to like and subscribe. If you're listening on YouTube, hit that like button. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Um, if you're listening on this podcast on any other platform, be sure to subscribe. Leave me a five-star rating or review to tell me how you feel about this podcast. Tell me if this is useful to you. Tell me if this has been helpful. Um, you can always support me directly financially with DIYinvesting.org slash patron. I have a Patreon program where I share my investing research um, to my patrons. So thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor.
The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.